The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But not hip hop, yo. <laughs> I let it be known that we are on some um This ain't on the pop tip, yo. Are y'all kids tucked in? Yeah. Here we go. Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. During a stop on his book tour at the College of Charleston, Governor Ron DeSantis said, quote, We fight wokeness everywhere we can. I don't think you can have a truly free state just because you have low taxes, low regulation, and no COVID restrictions. If the left is able to impose its agenda through the educational system, through the business sphere, through all these others. A free state means you're protecting your people from the left's pathologies across the board. End quote. Not for the first time, this struck me as an odd use of the word freedom. I began to compile a list of so-called freedoms that don't match my definition of freedom. I remembered a 2015 Supreme Court case where a wedding cake baker in Colorado refused to offer his services to a same-sex couple because he said it was against his religion. A state court had found that he violated state civil rights law, but the U.S. Supreme Court said that the law violated this man's religious freedom. This reminded me of the segregated South in the 1950s and 60s where white citizens were free to discriminate against people of color. Sometimes it was their freedom as business owners to refuse service to anyone they want, including for reasons as simple as skin color. Or sometimes it was religious freedom. A common theme at the time was that the Bible required segregation through the story of Noah and his sons. To me, it all added up to saying, I am free to discriminate and treat people like shit, and if you try to take away that from me, you are discriminating against me and violating my freedoms. It became apparent that the word freedom is a social construct, a contested space. So when I came across the work of Elizabeth Anker, I found a touchstone to ground my intellectual curiosity. She's a professor of American Studies and Political Science at George Washington University in D.C. and the director of their Film Studies program. Her first book, Orgies of Feeling, Melodrama and the Politics of Freedom, lays a groundwork for analyzing freedom-based narratives in popular culture. The theme is extended in her 2022 book, Ugly Freedoms, and this is where the rubber hits the road for me. I won't spoil the ending here, but the bottom line is that multiple definitions of freedom can exist simultaneously, and in fact have always existed simultaneously. But before we get there, we start by hearing a little about how she came to study these ugly freedoms, these freedoms that legitimate harm and brutality. I was trained in political theory and also in like film and media studies. So I've always been really interested in these large political questions about freedom and democracy and how they play out and also how our cultural products help us to understand and interpret them, understand what our roles are as citizens, as political subjects. Hmm. So that's often how I approach um always my analysis of contemporary politics. And one of the things that got me the most interested in freedom is in my last book, which was on melodrama, where I was looking at how melodramatic narratives of good and evil, villains, victims, and heroes, you know, shape national politics. And I was especially looking at the war on terror. And as I was finishing that book, I thought it was really interesting that both the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq were both titled 
um, you know, freedom. One was Operation Enduring Freedom and one was Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I thought like, you know, how do we understand this kind of freedom that is meant to both liberate unfree peoples, but that also completely destroys, you know, the societies and life worlds of the people who are being invaded in which they often, you know, often do not have a choice, have no agency in these decisions. Mm -hmm. And I started to think like it was a really problematic use of freedom. And, you know, as a as somebody who's also, you know, thinks about history, I started to go back into a lot of the stories we tell about American politics and starting to see that it was not uncommon the ways in which people will use freedom to justify things that are both seem to try to stop domination, but also that deeply create new forms of domination. And I you know I'm looking back at American history, I was thinking even of like the founding of the American state, right? This kind of glorious act of world making and democratic collective freedom that was American independence that also enacted incredible forms of indigenous dispossession, the destruction of life worlds. It was funded in part by, you know, um, by slavery. And so it seemed to me that this kind of freedom that legitimates harm and brutality is something that has been with us from the start, but we often don't pay attention to it because we, you know, our claim is that freedom is always our highest political ideal. And that's the only way we approach it. That part about uh, American revolution reminds me of Yasser Arafat's quote years ago. And he's like a terrorist. Who are you calling a terrorist? George Washington was a terrorist. Just ask the British. The indigenous studies scholar, Audra Simpson reminds us that George Washington's name in, in indigenous language translates into town destroyer. No kidding. I did not know yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we could start with that term freedom then um, before we go to ugly freedoms to get try to get a definition of it, like a, a good working definition, because I just thought before I was reading your work, just the absence of restrictions. Right. That's simple. But uh, it's not right. In your book, you bring in a number of attempts. You talk about even Franz Fanon, like Wretched there, Karl Marx, Hannah Arendt, all these all these people. And you say in the article, in the New York Times article, you, you end it by saying, I'm going to come back to this quote. If we don't push back against the popularity, growing popularity of ugly freedoms, we will have ceded what freedom means to those who support monopolistic rule, et cetera. So what does freedom mean in, in your in your words? You know, here's the really challenging part of it. Freedom is something that has been discussed, debated, and defined in different ways over more than 2,000 years of political thought. And no one person has the definition that has convinced everybody else that they are right Mm -hmm. about it, which doesn't mean freedom means everything. But, you know, but it's often a set of ideas that might mean things like nobody tells me what to do, right? Like my actions are uncoerced. Nobody's coercing me to do anything or to think something. Mm -hmm. Um, Other times freedom means the capacity to participate in politics, right? That you are not free if you don't have a say in the conditions that govern your life. Um, So that's another tradition that's quite different from nobody telling me what to do. It's my capacity to participate in in decision-making alongside other people. Mm -hmm. You know, people have argued that freedom is non-domination. Anything we do in the world that is not about domination and that is ensuring that domination doesn't exist, Mm. right? Freedom can mean the emancipation from slavery, the emancipation from tyranny. It can be self-determination. It can mean the capacity for, you know, making the world... So in all of these different ways, you know, if freedom connects to ideas about independence, um, 
you know, agency, acting in the world. But each of those has a different inflection and they can be used towards really different forms of politics. Mm -hmm. So what your definition would be applying it in a way that 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 any of those that you brought up fits your purest definition of what you strive for? If we were to strive for freedom, what would it be? I am not sure that I come down on having one pure definition of what freedom is. Okay. Hard to I have, define in a vacuum as well. I know. Yeah. 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 And, and sometimes I think a lot, you know, oftentimes our understanding of what freedoms is comes out from the conditions that we point to where freedom is not, right? So freedom comes out of our understanding of what is oppressive at this moment, what is harmful and violent, what is not allowing people to have the say in their world. And so oftentimes our understandings of freedom are actually deeply embedded in how we're living at a particular moment. Okay. So sometimes it's hard to have an, an ideal of freedom that is separated from the actual conditions we live in every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sociology, we talk a lot about social constructionism, you know, just these terms like deviance or race, you know, these kind of things. Yeah. And sounds like another another example, what it means depends on the time, the place, you know, the person. But when you wrote that in the Times, I was thinking, all right, you know, what actually does she mean by freedom? So then that brings us to ugly freedoms, right? So uh, you have written, I'm just going to pull a quote or two out here. Uh, freedom is thus at the highest ideal in American politics and also the most brutal and ugly freedoms de-idealizes freedom and its entailments. So um, maybe we could talk in general what you mean by that, but then we'll apply it to a couple, a couple of these different topics. Something that seems like it's just an impulse to regulate individual choices is now is often called freedom. So what do you mean by that term, ugly freedoms? Ugly freedoms is any time we see the language of freedom or the practice of freedom that includes brutality or harm, violence, discrimination. Anytime somebody's exercise of freedom actually impinges on um, other people's capacity to live in the world and to flourish. And you know, sometimes that might sound like a standard definition, right? Like freedom should be where, you know, I can do what I want as long as I'm not harming somebody else. Mm -hmm. But so often our understandings and practices of freedom entail harm. And that's what I'm pointing to. When we imagine that freedom is always an ideal, it's always blemished, it's always going to be the highest you know, a value we can strive for politically, then we are going to miss out on all of the ways that freedom can entail forms of discrimination and violence. Mm -hmm. right? I, and, and oftentimes if somebody's practicing a freedom that we don't agree with, we do one of two things. One, we tell them they're wrong. That's not really freedom. Mm -hmm. But it is in the sense that we can look to the history of the U.S. and see all these times that freedom has been practiced in really brutal ways. Mm -hmm. Right. So the problem is not that it's not freedom. The problem is that it's actually a, a, a de-idealized form of freedom. Right? It's freedom exercised as, as subjugation. Mm. Um, or if we see that, we might, you know, sometimes we say, well, if somebody's practicing a freedom, I might not agree with it, but freedom is, I can't challenge their ideal, right? That's just what freedom is. I have to leave them alone and let them do their thing. Right. I think when we de-idealize freedom, it also gives us the space to start challenging those forms of freedom that we don't agree with. It gives us a language to say, right? If I, you know, if freedom is supposed to be about practices that are not about exclusion or harm, and your practice is excluding and harming people, maybe that's not the kind of freedom that we actually, like you don't just get a pass because you say your brutality is freedom. Right, right. That reminds me of the, some of these, um, like the wedding cake case, the guy, the baker, 
who didn't have to make the the wedding cake for the same sex marriage. You know, it's almost like that argument was you. I have freedom to discriminate against you. And by you trying to keep me from that, you know, you're discriminating against me. <laughs> you know, like it's just exactly. such exactly this kind of circular logic, you know. We're seeing a really similar logic right now in abortion debates, right, with medical practitioners who claim that having to treat somebody with, you know, who is going through an abortion or having complications from a miscarriage, that that harms the medical provider. Right, right. Isn't that what the the argument was in Texas, the federal judge recently who who said the FDA doesn't know what they're talking about, I guess, right? They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I think I read I read something about that um, just recently, that that same argument. I don't know where where I read it. But um, but yeah, like it's it's emotionally disturbing these doctors to have to do this and they, you know, their freedom is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, again, it all comes it all comes back to Elizabeth Anchor. Okay. Um, (laughs) Like this notion of freedom, it all comes back. So um, maybe one or two examples. So we both teach, um, and I'm in Florida, and you are from Florida. So we um, there's just a number of quick examples, but you've you've talked about some of them too. So the the anti critical race theory bill uh, that was passed in Florida last year is called the Individual Freedom Act. Like that's the formal name of it, Individual Freedom Act. But you're not free yeah. to talk about certain things. Um, and then we have a uh, the Florida College presidents put out a statement as a group uh, in response to to uh, DeSantis and said essentially this is just part of the wording um, the Florida College presidents uh, will ensure that all initiatives, instruction, and activities do not promote any ideology that suppresses intellectual and academic freedom, freedom of expression, viewpoint diversity, and the pursuit of truth in teaching and learning. So. Um, that's what we're operating under right now. It's just a directive by our presidents. It's not a formal organization through the state per se, you know. So the colleges are saying we're not going to promote anything, any instruction. So the diversity, equity, and as you might know, DeSantis required all the colleges in the state and universities to tell the state how much money they're spending each year on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, you know, with the threat of probably going to take it away. So I understand why these presidents, they're risking losing millions and millions of dollars, you know. So, so this seems like this would be an ugly freedom if I'm reading your work correctly. Is that right? Definitely. I Control mean, you know, education. when you look at some of the things that 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 DeSantis calls as freedom, you know, he says, you know, banning books, allowing individuals in a community to ban the books of children, even if they don't have children at that school, right? That right. banning books is a form of freedom. His, you know, the Individual Freedom Act, as you know, it's also called the Stop Woke Act, Mm -hmm. which is not about freedom from racial discrimination. It's freedom from acknowledging racial discrimination, right, in schools and businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he has his whole uh, uh, crime, voting crimes unit that he says is out to protect the freedom of the vote. But, you know, he actually used it to arrest at gunpoint 20 people for the, quote, crime of voting. Mm-hmm. Even though they had been actually, you know, uh, kind of allowed to vote by the state, yeah. and, you know, in many of these ways, the bill, you know, the freedom agenda, and part of it is, you know, limiting um, abortion access. It is denying trans children the health care that they need. It is allowing, you know, stopping journalists from having freedom of speech by saying that, you know, some uh, that DeSantis can sue them if the coverage of him, you know, is not necessarily to his liking. Right, right. So in all of these different ways, DeSantis uses and harnesses the language of freedom in order to justify 
domination, discrimination, exclusion, the, you know, the ending of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, I, two nights ago when Joe Biden announced that he was running for president again, uh, you know, he was he, he was criticizing DeSantis and other forms of freedom by saying that those are not freedoms. You know, book banning is not a freedom. He was, you know, denying children health care is not a freedom. You know, but the difficulty of seeing ugly freedoms is to realize that Joe Biden is wrong in the sense that as ugly as DeSantis's freedoms are, they are legitimate freedoms in the sense that there is a very long history in the United States of people exercising precisely those kinds of freedoms, the freedom to you know dominate other people, the freedom to discriminate, the freedom to exclude people from protections. So, you know, the way to challenge those things, like what DeSantis says, is not just to say that those freedoms are wrong, but to say, how do we imagine freedom differently, right? Freedoms that don't harm other people, freedoms that don't deny people the basic things they need to live, freedoms that don't discriminate, but that expand everybody's capacity to live a flourishing life. Right? Okay. To me, those, that's the way we need to think through those questions. So you, that was kind of a good segue into the... Um what I was just wrote in my notes here as ugly freedoms apply to marginalized folks. So that could be gender. It could be a people of color, it could be uh sexuality, certainly with the trans uh, issues. So um, could you speak to that just briefly, just specifically about how these groups that are historically will have less power are affected by contemporary ugly freedoms? Yeah. You know, a lot of forms when freedom becomes ugly are used to justify the control or discrimination of other people. And oftentimes it's the people who are already in positions where they might be more marginalized, they might be more vulnerable, they might not be able to to have the power of the state, you know, behind them to to uh, press against some of those those claims. So a lot of the freedoms that we see right now that we've also seen throughout US history are freedoms, ugly freedoms that allow people to discriminate or harm other people. It's not new. You know, when we look back at uh, slavery, which for many people is the, you know, it's the opposite of freedom. We say that slavery is the opposite of freedom. But for a lot of the plantation masters and enslavers, they understood slavery as also part of their practice of freedom. It was their practice to gain economic independence. It was their practice to control private property. It was their practice to be masters over the lives of other human beings. So slavery was at the same time the opposite of freedom and a practice of freedom as mastery. Mm. You know, and that continued even up to the 20th century when George Wallace, the famous segregationist, mm-hmm. you know, he just de- he described his refusal to integrate as the ideology of our free fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we see similar moves with gender discrimination, the way that domestic violence was often considered the, the free practice of a husband. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and, and that also a lot of those laws continued into the 20th century. So oftentimes, but not exclusively, ugly freedoms are out to harm people who are in different vulnerable marginalized categories. But, you know, something if we look at something like DeSantis's book bans, those harm children in Florida schools across the board, right? right? As long as you're going to a Florida school, it kind of doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, right? You are not having access to the books that you need or that you would be curious about to learn more about the world. You can't even take the classes that DeSantis doesn't want you to take. So, you know, in, in many ways, ugly freedoms do target people for discrimination, but they often also target large scale and diverse populations or being excluded from the practice of being able to participate in politics or to 
you know, live a life free from coercion. Mm. I don't know. It's just an amazing time. The thing about slavery. It's exactly when we can sometimes see that the rule of law is itself a practice of ugly freedom. Right. You know, and it is terrifying. I used to teach sixth grade Mm. and I couldn't even imagine, you know, being, you know, part of, especially when you're, you know, any age in it, but especially middle school, students are trying, figuring out the world, figuring out their place in it. Mm-hmm. And you want to expose them to as much as possible to help them just think through what's this world like? How, what, how do I want to have a say in it? Right. And and to have state enforced incapacity to do that is, you know, um, it, it's such a form of authoritarianism, right? It's ugly freedom in, in its most authoritarian variant. So then the last one of far as like just uh, if you could apply the ugly freedoms for one more practical uh, notion would be on the environment. Your last uh, towards the end of your book, you say the ideal of freedom as it is often understood in modern Euro-American politics encompassing a set of definitions that includes control over nature, individual sovereignty, human exceptionalism, uncoerced will and private ownership contributes to the mass destruction of the climate. So my first couple of blog posts were about the notion of like people taking away jobs. We can't protect the environment because it hurts people's jobs and how this always kind of a antagonism between these two things when I don't think, you know, they need to be there. So your section on the, in that book resonated with me. So I wondered if you could just talk about that briefly. Sure. You know, I think this is also a, a form of ugly freedom that is affects everybody, not just a few people. You know, when we, Oftentimes, our versions, our understandings of freedom actually contribute to climate destruction, right? When we say, I am free to use as many resources as I can pay for, right? Nobody can tell me how much water to use or nobody can tell me how much crap to buy, you know, that that, that that's my freedom. And it comes from economic freedom. It comes from the freedom of private property. I am free to do on my property whatever I want. Right. Right? Those are my right. choices. Right. Uh, or the, the idea that... Um, that businesses are only free if they're free from environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. All of these are kinds of freedoms that actively contribute to the destruction of our climate. Mm-hmm. Right? We can see that in, in response to water restrictions, right? People who presume that water restrictions are against their freedom or that you have to give up something or giving up your desired use of water to placate the state or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. But there are many definitions of freedom that would tell us the exact opposite, right? If we understand freedom as being about how do we ensure the flourishing of our world, then these restrictions are not anti-freedom, they're actually in support of freedom, mm-hmm. right? Or if we understand, if, if, if we as a society collectively determine that we want to mitigate climate change, we wanna you know, support a, a better use of resources, then Having our agencies and government systems do that is not against freedom. It's literally the will of the people. Right. So, you know, in all of these different ways of thinking about freedom, um, we can find ways that would stop our versions of freedom that contribute to sheer climate destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes, if you even look in philosophy, in, um, in, in a modern philosophy, thinking of somebody like Kant, he actually tells us that nature is the opposite of freedom. Right, that nature is the thing that you need to control and dominate in order to be free. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. I think you know those core definitions are themselves a form of ugly freedom. 
Do you think the U.S. is different from other countries in our um, intensity of focus on that? I, I think when I lived in Montana, I remember um, which president was had a, signed an executive order banning um, snowmobiles in Yellowstone Park during a certain time, and um, for because of migratory routes of some animals or something. And of course, a lot of people were like, "It's my I'm a taxpayer. It's my freedom to be able to ride those whenever I want to," you know. And essentially, they lost that argument. But very s- subtle, but. In Glacier National Park up there in the Canadian border, we share it with Canada. It's called Waterton Lakes Park there, Glacier Park in the U.S. And there's restrictions. If you want to bring your boat to one of those lakes, you have to have your boat sit out for like two months before you can put it in the water because they don't want anything that might be organisms in the engine or something to go into these pristine lakes. But in in Canada, for Waterton Lakes, you have to keep it out for three months or maybe it's four months. And I remember thinking, you know, that's interesting. In Canada, they maybe just didn't quite complain as much about taking away my freedom to ride my boat wherever the hell I want to ride my boat in this national park, you know. So do you think um, the U.S. is exceptional in this way? I don't think the U.S. everywhere. The U.S. is not. um, It's not entirely unique but there are some factors that make it significantly more excessive in this number one is our connection of freedom with individualism right mm-hmm. the sense of freedom that it is only i get to do with whatever i want with the things that i own all the time that's my freedom nobody can tell me what to do right that deep connection between freedom and that individualism that sense that your community is not your partner but your antagonist mm-hmm. that's that is much stronger in america than most other places and secondly, the, the claim that business regulation is a form of unfreedom, that kind of fundamental neoliberal argument that anything that the state does is a form of unfreedom, that is also particularly strong in the United States. Mm-hmm. A lot of other people might not regulate, you know, uh, waterways and things like that, although most industrialized and wealthy nations do. We, we are an outlier in this way. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when, when places don't, it's more about mismanagement or corruption or not having the resources to do it. But that real ideology of believing that anytime the state does something that is dangerous for business, it's destructive for business. Yeah, that is that is that is strongly American. Okay, thank you. Uh, you okay on time? Yes. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm great. Okay. So uh, because that did that brought something else up too. Um, this uh, you I forget how you just put it, but something about not being part of your community, but seeing that, that more individualism. I remember uh, yeah. I t- talked to a man named Tim Wise. He's an anti-racism educator. And he was saying, look at things that are called public, you know, public housing, you know, public transportation, like these are so devalued. And so I wondered about that. What, what, I guess the freedoms, ugly freedoms, just, do they just thrive better when that is the most common narrative? You know, they can thrive in a few ways in relation to the to publics. There is a sense under our kind of current economic neoliberal system, right, that everything that is labeled public is either decrepit, it should be defunded, um, or if you rely on it, that means you're dominated, right? The right public support, state support is considered there's something weak about you for needing it, as opposed to other countries where there is a sense that if something is public, it means that everybody deserves it as by the nature of being a human being, right? That we all deserve health care. We all deserve a clean and safe home, mm-hmm, um, right. you know, and that that can be publicly supported. And that's absolutely fine, right? Like, okay. like you know, there's something specific about that. But there have also been times in the U.S., and I think, once again, if we get back to this the kind of post-reconstruction moment of Jim Crow, where the public was defined 
as the space where only white people can go. So there has also been investments in public life that have also been discriminatory. We also see that in, in laws that were called the ugly laws in the 19th and 20th century, which forbid visibly poor and disabled people from inhabiting public space. And so oftentimes people can invest in a public that is itself not inclusive of all people that actively discriminates. Mm -hmm. So for me, what would make both of those situations not ugly is a robust investment in a public in the sense of something that we all collectively share, care about and participate in and making sure that that is as robust and inclusive and equal as possible. That's great. That's great. Did you uh, have you read uh, Matthew Desmond's work by any chance? The sociology. Yes, I just taught um, evicted a couple okay. of weeks ago. Have you yeah, seen yeah. His, his new book or at least his write up for it? I know about it, and I've read yeah. the op ed, but I haven't read. Wasn't it a fantastic op ed? I mean, I thought yeah. it was just fantastic. Um, but how he ties so much of that into you know the the poverty, the persistence of poverty, and these same things that you're mentioning, essentially, you know, landlords. You even bring up. You know, at some point, landlords and tenants and things like that. I th- thought that was a great, a great piece. Um, okay, so I asked you if we think that the U.S. is unique in this. Do you think this is a time when uh, ugly freedoms are more important by meaning like more controlling now than they were in the past, or has it been kind of a constant mode? Because you've already mentioned a number of times slavery, the displacement of indigenous peoples. However, they manifest now. Is this one constant stream, or is this a particularly unique time in a history where they're even more intense? Ugly freedoms have been with us since before the founding of the United States, but they also can wax and wane in particular ways. And I do think we are seeing a really heightened and virulent forms of ugly freedom, um, especially in the last. 15, 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the combination of freedom as the claim that you have to do everything on your own, the economic claim, you're only free if you're an entrepreneur, you're only free if you don't depend on government for anything, mm-hmm. right? All of those actually really weaken us and keep us without the resources we need to live. And at the same time, the kind of freedom that we are noticing by DeSantis, but certainly not only him, the sort of freedoms we're seeing all over the country now where people right that that freedom is about the freedom to discriminate freedom yeah. is about the freedom to injure harm other people and not to be responsible for it you know we're seeing that happening in a lot of state houses um all across the country right now so in some sense i do think the language of freedom is being even more heightened in some of these really injurious ways all right, thank you so the last part then is what do we do um how do we create a definition of freedom that and you know, maybe it's not a definition, at least um, a way that it is uh, practiced and not just espoused. That's less callous and vicious. I don't know if we can. Uh, Francis Fox Piven once wrote that as thinking people, we don't pay enough attention to the human lust for cruelty. And then I think, wow, if that's true, then shit, what are we going to do about that? And you write in that New York Times article, if we don't push back against the growing popularity of these ugly freedoms. So what does that mean? How do we push back? How do we reclaim the term in in more humane ways? I have two answers. The (laughs) first one is every time we think about using freedom, exercising freedom, I think we always need to be asking ourselves a set of questions. And at the same time, anybody who's using freedom, and I think this is part of reclaiming it, right? Is your freedom expanding everybody's capacity to live a flourishing life, or is it harming some people and only benefiting some, right? Is the freedom that you are asking for enabling discrimination or fighting discrimination? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Is the freedom you are asking for, you know, allowing for participation in our political and social world, or is it anti-democratic and, and not allowing for people to have power and having a say, right? And I think every time we think about what, you know, any freedom, rather than saying like, that's a wrong freedom, and here's my right freedom, I think we always need to ask these important questions. Is it expansive? Is it supportive? Is it discriminatory? And that can help us to really evaluate it. You know, when Biden is trying to offer some of his freedoms, you know, I think he needs to be asking himself the same thing and maybe even pushing a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. How do we envision a world where freedoms are actually accessible to all people and all people have an equal say Mm -hmm. in our in the world, you know, making the world together? Um, The second way I would answer it is that I think part of ugly freedoms is de-idealizing freedom in the sense that let's look at how sometimes some of these ideals actually produce harm. But another way of also de-idealizing freedom is that sometimes when we imagine what better freedoms can be, we're still trapped in that ideal place where freedom always has to be heroic. It always requires courage. You you have to master yourself or you're engaging in a collective emancipation. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes those ideals can also limit how we understand freedom. There's so many more freedoms available to us in our daily lives when we stop imagining that we need to be a heroic actor mm-hmm. or that we have to have, you know, full agency and control over our own lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about this in terms of DeSantis, and this is where I'll, I'll end. There are certainly people practicing more heroic forms of freedom, offering legal challenges, social movements that are really mobilizing people, Um, you know, politicians who are practicing civil disobedience and all of that is great. But there are also some kind of non-ideal freedoms that are also much more accessible to people who are equally upset about what's happening. But they might be college students working three jobs just to try to like, you know, make ends meet and not get out of debt. They might be people who are homebound or who have caretaking responsibilities or queer teenagers who are just scared about the future. And like what, you know, what's available. And so one of the things I've actually been looking at is the meme circulation of DeSantis wearing his white boots. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and the way in which, right, DeSantis and go-go boots was a meme that ended up circulating around to kind of challenge some of DeSantis's most authoritarian goals. Mm-hmm. And of course, on the one hand, we could say, you know, circulating a meme is not exactly a heroic practice that requires courage. You're circulating something, you're mocking something. But I actually think it did important work. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, it really delegitimated DeSantis's own performance of himself as this tough guy who's the sole defender of Florida, right? It was people saying, no, that's not true. Like, you know, we're, we're entirely delegitimating your freedom agenda, what you imagine to be. Yeah. And on the other hand, it was also like people who are exhausted, overstretched and extended, who still were entirely free to circulate this, to to make their own, you know, forms nice. of mockery and, and to push a space of refusal mm-hmm. against DeSantis without having it have to be this heroic moment of collective emancipation or something like that. And so I want us to think about some how these de-idealized freedoms can also circulate in our everyday lives in ways that make freedom much more accessible to people who are just trying to scrape by. And that makes it a lot more hopeful <laughs> if to take that approach. You know, I think it goes back to capitalism. It goes back to patriarchy. I mean, like, how are we going to tackle that? You know, and I, when I my head starts going that way, because I, I trace most things these days just back to patriarchy. But when I think about it in those terms, it's easier to just throw up your hands. But with these smaller, creating these smaller spaces of refusal, as you put it, I think, uh, I think gives us, I don't know, it gives us hope, something that we can do. 
Anything else? Is there anything that you want that you, I, I try to skip? I feel like we covered a lot of ground in a oh. short time, and I really okay. appreciate your questions and the, the opportunity to talk about Ugly Freedoms. Okay. Thanks, Libby. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Good. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Take care, you too. Bye-bye. My thanks to Elizabeth Anchor. This kind of conversation that makes me happy, I started this blog and podcast. I know a little bit about this and a little bit about that, but there are so many areas that I want to know more about. And I'm delighted when I can talk to someone who has such a developed, well-thought-out, nuanced take on issues that I'm interested in, but not too knowledgeable about. Voltaire once said, The more I read, the more I acquire, the more certain I am that I know nothing. These are the sort of conversations which remind me that the searching and the striving is what matters. If you liked the episode, please be sure to like it in all the usual podcast spots and reviews. I'd appreciate it. It's a free public sociology blog on social issues, and I think the more people that hear about it, the better. All my guests have enlightened me, and I hope they can enlighten others. So spread the word and become a member if you're not already. You just have to create a username and a password, then you can comment on all the posts. As for the music, Professor Anchor is a lover of 80s and 90s hip-hop, and it doesn't take much effort to twist my arm towards a tribe called Quest. We heard their songs If the Peeps Come and Jazz We Got and Cold Rock a Party by MC Lights playing in the background right now. Our social landscape's a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Send any questions or comments to me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. I thank you for listening. You make them scream, and I'm a show enough be the boss on this team. So all you MCs, how I miss it, make the green. Uh-huh, I rock uh-huh. the party that rocks the body. You rock the party that rocks the body. I rock the party that rocks the body. You rock the party that rocks the body. I rock the party that rocks the body. You rock the party that rocks the body. I rock the party that rocks the body. You rock the party that rocks the body. That's right. That's me, complicated rap star, meet like the MC. You see, I'm on to your baby and your mechanism. How you hit it when you're in it so hot, you keep it sizzling. No ooh, I she ooh, and all of that too. Keep me wetted in the waters of Kalamazoo. Who you come in with when your posse at? I leave the boys alone, tell her you won't be back. I got the cheese, baby. My cheddar's better.